Psalm 127, we're continuing on in our series through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 127. Starting in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. You can be seated and let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do not want to labor in vain. We want our life to count. We want our life and our work and our family, our homes. We want them to count. We want them to have real meaning and significance, not to be in vain. And so, Help us, Lord, as we come to this word. Teach us, we pray. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see what's really here. And may you encourage us. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, there was a uh, French philosopher, historian, educational reformer, his name was Victor Cousin, looks like cousin in English, we would just say cousin, but that's how you say it in French, 19th century philosopher, historian, educational reformer, and was one of the most esteemed and popular thinkers of his time. He wrote in one of his early works on philosophy these words, What is the business of history? What is the stuff of which it is made? Who is the personage of history? Man. Evidently, man and human nature. History is therefore the development of humanity and of humanity only. For nothing else but humanity develops itself. For nothing else than humanity is free. Well, this philosopher had a profound influence on another 19th century figure, more well-known to us, I'm sure, the American essayist and poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson, known for a lot of things, uh, known especially for his short, pithy, and sort of eminently quotable style. In the following excerpts from Emerson, I'm just going to read a couple things, you will be able to hear the influence of Cousin. Emerson says, quote, Self-trust is the first secret of success. 
The good news is that the moment you decide that what you know is more important than what you have been taught to believe, you will have shifted gears in your quest for abundance. Success comes from within, not from without. Sound familiar? These sorts of thoughts? They should sound familiar, but not necessarily because you're well-versed with Cousin or Emerson. But it should sound familiar because it's the sort of pop culture air that we live and breathe today. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Success comes from within, not from without. In other words, significance and meaning comes from within, not from without. This vision of reality plays to the very core of our old sinful nature, does it not? Life is ultimately about me, my desires, my wants, my aims, my work. At the center of the I world, as pastor theologian Von Roberts likes to call it, stands the I, me, mankind. And brothers and sisters, we're not automatically immune from this way of thinking. If we are not intentionally being transformed by the renewing of our minds, taking every thought captive to Christ... This will be our default perspective. We will be conformed to this I world, like a little twig tossed in a raging river, going with the flow. That's what will happen if we're not intentional. Now, without intending to denigrate these men or diminish their brilliance, they were in many respects brilliant. Certainly not to pass judgment on the condition of their souls before God. I do want to say that such sentiments, such ideas, ultimately fail. Or in the language of our psalm, they're in vain. In vain. For they are, at bottom, a reflection of what we might call a man-centered view of reality. By contrast, Psalm 127 gives us a God-centered view of reality. You saw it at the very beginning. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord watches over the city. Or children are a heritage from the Lord. This psalm is radically and relentlessly God-centered. It gives us a God-centered view of reality. As one scholar that I read put it, this psalm intends to inculcate respect for divine providence. To inculcate respect for divine providence. That's right. Man proposes, the old saying goes, but God disposes. The only thing I would add to his insight is that 
the psalmist intends not only to, to inculcate respect in us for divine providence, which just refers to God's wise, good, and purposeful governance of all things. The psalmist intends not only to inculcate respect for that, but also he intends to inspire worship and to strengthen feeble faith in view of it. This is a psalm, after all. Sometimes application is less go and do likewise and more behold in wonder and be strengthened. So here we are, Psalm 127, this radically God-centered psalm. The key, I think, to this wisdom psalm, as many refer to it, like much of wisdom literature more broadly, is recognizing that in all five of these verses, there is fundamentally one point being made. One point being made, and it can be expressed either negatively or positively. Negatively, it would sound something like this. Without the Lord, all human activity is in vain. Positively, it would sound like this. Only the Lord provides true success to all human activity. Verses 1 and 2 teach this explicitly. And verses 3 to 5, though at first glance seeming a little out of place, teach the same thing implicitly. Both parts, verses 1 and 2, and verses 3 and 5, both parts affirm the vanity of human self-sufficiency and the pervasive providence of God. That's what it's about. In the famous words of Shakespeare, in his play Hamlet, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. Classic Elizabethan English, but the point is clear. Furthermore, like all good poetry, it reveals this overall point, this one fundamental point, through images. Specifically, four of them. Four images. Number one, building a house. Number two, guarding a city. Number three, laboring for food. And number four, building a family. Four different images for us to consider. And these different images can actually then be grouped together into basically two spheres or realms of life. We could think about it in terms of work, the work realm, work sphere of life, and family, family realm or family sphere of life. And since work and family account for the vast majority of our waking hours, both then and now, it is right to draw the conclusion that God's providence, God's purposeful governance of all things is pervasive. It includes everything down to the mundane, the everyday, the nine to five, the dinner table. There's no part of life that God is not 
providentially overseeing. And thus, to ignore him in our pursuits, domestic, vocational, and all the rest, is the height of folly and ultimately fruitless and ineffective. It is vain. So let's look at these two parts, these two sections, one at a time here. First, we'll look at the realm of work. This is found in verses 1 and 2, which also happens to include three of the four images. So again, draw your eyes to verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So the house, the city, and this laboring for bread I'm going to call the field. In that society, uh, most people were working in the field. That was their livelihood. And to get bread, they would work in the field. So we've got the house, the city, and the field here in this first section, the realm of work. And it's apparent, I think, by just the parallel structure in verse 1, that both halves of verse 1 are making the same point. I think you can see that pretty clearly. The point is, no matter what amount of effort, skill, ingenuity, or flat-out discipline is involved in our work, if the Lord is not in it, if the Lord is not building, if the Lord is not watching, it is in vain. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's, just, it's all over the Bible. This is... I don't think I'm just cherry-picking a small selection of verses. This is, it's all over the Bible. No amount of effort, skill, ingenuity, flat-out discipline will make our work, make our lives ultimately meaningful, successful, of significance if the Lord is not in it. The point is clear enough. I think. But, at least in my mind, this point comes with a truckload of questions. And I'm only going to mention two, otherwise we'd be here a lot longer than you probably want to be here. But two questions that I think this point raises, two important questions. Number one, what does in vain mean? When in fact, many houses are built, many cities are secured, successfully watched over, 
by God denying and God belittling people. So how is, how is that in vain? That's a good question. Second question. What does it mean to work in such a way that God himself is working in your working so that your labors are not in vain? For most of us in this room, I presume we don't want our labor to be in vain. <laughs> if, you just, if you asked us, well, we want to count. We want our lives to count. Okay? Well, the Lord's got to be in it. So how, the second question is, how do we work in such a way that it is God himself working in our working? Assuring us then that our work is not in vain. That, that's the second question. And we will get to those questions, I promise you. But we need to see a little bit more in the text first. So look now at verse 2 again. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So, if the point of verse 1 was there's no amount of effort or discipline or skill, all that, no amount of that proves truly useful or beneficial if the Lord's not in it. If that's the point of verse 1, the point of verse 2 is that working even longer is emphatically not the solution. It's like, well, I guess what I need to do is just work more hours, work harder, and then my life will count. Then my work will count. Well, verse 2 is here to say, no, that's not the solution. That too is vain. That too is vain. And we should ask why. Because, or for, second half of the verse, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. This is also one that just kind of makes you stop and ponder for a little bit of how this logic works here. But, that's what the word says, the reason the inspired psalmist gives for the vanity of the ceaseless, frantic, anxiety-producing labor, this early to rise and late to bed, the reason the psalmist gives for why that is vanity is that the Lord gives to his people sleep. (laughs) Hmm. So how does that logic work I think it means something like this that receiving the Lord's gift of sleep that is by actually going to sleep and getting enough sleep receiving that gift is evidence of the fact that you know the fruitfulness of your labor, of your work, the real significance of it all is ultimately in the Lord's hands. You can rest. I think that's what it means. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep, therefore, it's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. In other words, 
By receiving the gift, you give evidence that you understand it's not ultimately up to you. Yes, you can work hard, and then you can rest. It's ultimately in the Lord's hands. How often do you take advantage of this gift? It's a good question. And I'm certainly asking that question first of myself. How often do we receive this gift and are able to rest knowing that it's the Lord who makes us, makes our life, our work, our labor count? have real meaning and significance. You can rest. So I said we'd come back to those questions, and we're going to tackle the first one here. Three times in the first two verses, you have the word vain show up, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who keep watch over, keep watching, vain. It is vain. You kind of get in the emphasis. The psalmist wants to teach us something here about the meaning of reality. That's big. So what does this vanity mean? What, what does it mean that this is in vain if we're, if we're living like this, if we're working like this? It's not the same word as the word for vanity, in Ecclesiastes. But the concept is very similar. So if you're th- in your mind thinking, of, oh, I've got all this like vanity stuff stored up from Ecclesiastes, that's good. That, that would help you here, even though it's not technically the same word. But basically it means something like this. Pursuing something without reference to the ultimate reality, meaning, or purpose of life. That's what it means to do something in vain. To pursue it without reference to the ultimate meaning and purpose of life. Well, that begs the question, what is that? What is the ultimate meaning and purpose of life that I need to make reference to, that I need to have in my mind as I live and work so that all my activity is not in vain. What is that? What is that ultimate meaning and purpose of life? Well, in a word, it's God. Every single reference to vanity in these two verses is paired with a reference to the Lord. That's no accident. Unless the Lord, first half of verse 1, Unless the Lord, first, second half of verse 1, for he gives to his beloved sleep, second half of verse 2. That's no mistake. The ultimate meaning of life is God. <laughs> God is ultimate reality. God gives ultimate meaning to life. Listen to these texts. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. 
To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six, Or by him, now speaking more specifically of Jesus Christ, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. That's it. That's expanse. That's it. That's everything. All things. From him are all things, through him are all things, and to or for him are all things. So to work in such a way as if God did not exist is, according to the psalmist, futile, vain, superficial, worthless. It's being done without reference to the meaning of work and life given by the one who created work and life. That's what vain means in Psalm 127. The point is not, get this, the point is not that our projects will literally fail. That is, that houses won't literally be built Cities won't literally be watched over. Bread won't literally be worked for and gained. That's not the point. The point is that they will be worthless, ultimately leading nowhere apart from the Lord. Oh, sure. You might build a lot of houses. You might secure a lot of cities. You might make lots of money and provide yourselves with lots of bread. You may even give lots of bread to others. But without reference to the Lord, without dependence upon Him, it's all vain. Just, I mean, just stop and think and just pause. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people on this planet are going to work every day. They're laboring hard every day. They're getting their bread every day. They may even be generous and share with others every day. And they care not a lick about God, about Jesus Christ. And this word says, all of that is vain. It actually ends up nowhere, ultimately, apart from the Lord. What an offensive thing to say. That's why it's radically God-centered, this psalm. The whole Bible is radically God-centered, but this psalm especially radically God-centered. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? For us, as we live, as we work. Do you? Do you work? Do you labor? with reference to God in your life. I hope so. I hope so. I'm pleading with you tonight to do so, and in just a few moments, we're going to talk a little bit about how that can actually practically take shape in your life. But I hope so. If That's how you're pursuing your work. That's the realm of work, verses 1 and 2. What about the family? 
So look at verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, our text next week, Psalm 128, has a lot more to say about the family. And so, I'm just going to make a few brief comments here tonight, and next week we'll have, we'll have more on the family here in Psalm 128. But briefly, two things I want us to see. Number one, when we move to this section of the psalm, don't make the mistake of thinking that we have now left the centrality of God behind that was so prominent in verses 1 and 2. Even though, admittedly, it is more implicit here. But notice verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord. From the Lord. Having children with all it entails seems so often to us a natural, ordinary, human act, very much under our control, until it isn't. Unwanted singleness, no children. Infertility, no children. Miscarriage, no children. Stillbirth, no children. Our children are a heritage from the Lord. See, especially in those kinds of moments facing that kind of pain, we realize the true nature of our involvement in the process of having children. Our efforts in having children, believe, they're, they're necessary. They are God's appointed means. They are necessary, but they are secondary. God is primary. So we got the same theme that we saw in work. It's now being applied to family. The Bible is clear on this from beginning to end. Here's just one other example. When Rachel, who was barren, said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Remember how Jacob responded? This is what he said. Well, first the text says he became angry. And then he said to her, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. In other words, to open and close the womb To give and to withhold is God's job. It's God's prerogative. Now, as as I was uh, preparing for this and just praying through this particular moment, it was just impressed upon me that I know some of you in this room Your heart's desire has been to have children and for whatever reason, they have not come. That's a painful 
place to be. I just want you to know, I know that. And I also want you to know, the Lord knows and is with you. He is with you. There's so much that I would want to say to you. Much more than can be said in just these few moments. But I I do want to just share these words from a hymn in hopes that they, if this is you tonight, in hopes that this would be a comfort to you. It was written by a man who faced significant depression and pain in his own life. And so that's who these words are coming from. Many of you will recognize it. The title of the hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. But here, these particular verses. Ye fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He gives, he withholds. That may be a frowning providence for you. But behind that frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. He has purposes. He's a wise, good, holy God who rules all things, not absently or harshly, but with good purposes. That's what he's drawing attention to. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So I just encourage you, if that's you tonight, if this has been a hard text for you at maybe a certain point in your life or is now, The Lord has good purposes for you as his child. Children, as the the verse says, they are the fruit of the womb. They are a reward. They are a heritage. They're a wonderful blessing. That's true. And we need to rejoice in that. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice in having children. And we need to weep with those who weep who can't but the stress in this psalm is they are a reward they are a blessing and mainly the first part of verse 3 wants us not to forget that they are from the Lord that was the first thing I wanted you to see the second thing much briefer is this verses 4 and 5 they they flesh out one specific reason why children are this heritage, this reward. This business about, in verse 5, speaking with enemies in the gate is uh, admittedly a little strange to our ears probably today. The gate in those days was where justice was enacted, where all kinds of matters, legal, economic, social, were disputed and adjudicated. So here's just one biblical example 
of this. This is from Amos chapter 5, verse 12, where the prophet says, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. In other words, that was the place where all of these matters were to be dealt with. And justice was to be enacted, and Israel was not doing it, is the point of Amos 5 there. But in terms of the gate, that's what's going on here. And so the point in the psalm is that children, especially sons in that day, born in one's youth, would like arrows in the hand of a warrior, be able to fight for your interests when you're old and can no longer speak for yourself or defend yourself. You would have children to go before you on your behalf in the gate, making sure you were not being defrauded, taking advantage of, etc., So that's what verses 4 and 5 are talking about. That's one specific reason in that context why children were a blessing. They're a heritage from the Lord. They're they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. They can help you when you need help. Blessed indeed would such a man be, as verse 5 says, to have children who rise up and care for you in that way. Well, I mentioned the two questions earlier. We dealt with the first one. We've seen this this overarching point of God's hand in everything that gives meaning and significance to everything, your work, your, your labor, your life, your family life, work and family. We've seen that. We still have this last question to deal with. And it's this, what does it mean to work in such a way that God himself is working in your working so that your labors are not in vain? That's a a tough question. But at least as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, it is the kind of question that this text just forces upon us if we want our lives to be significant and count in our work. So, that's the question. Here's a, a couple other texts to give you the same flavor of this question, this reality, and maybe this will start to help. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul's saying, I'm working. In fact, I'm working hard. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. And therefore, not in vain. Or, here's 1 Peter 4.11. Peter says, Whoever serves... Let him do so as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, I want you to serve, I want you to work, Christians, but I want you to do so in the strength of another, namely God's, so that in everything that you do, God's glorified. 
This is, in other words, it's doing work in such a way that you're given full recognition to God. It doesn't terminate on ourselves. So how does that work? How, how do you practically do that? How do you live every day in that way, in a way that's not superficial? How do we live and work in recognition that it is ultimately God who must be working in our working? How do we do that? Well, the best help that I've received on this, just at a very practical level, like when I wake up tomorrow morning, what can I do to work not in vain? The best help I've gotten from this has come from John Piper, who got the substance of it from J.I. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. Some of you may have read this book. The acronym that Piper gives it is APTAT. A-P-T-A-T. APTAT. It's an acronym. Here's what it stands for. The first A. Admit. In other words, admit that in and of yourself, you can do nothing of eternal significance. This comes from John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, right? Whoever does not abide in me cannot bear much fruit. So, we just admit to ourselves when we wake up every day. I, left to myself, Lord, I can't do anything of ultimate meaning and significance. I just admit that before you. Okay, that's an A. First A. What's the P? Pray. Pray for the help that you need. So if you're going to labor in building, but at the end of the day, it's the Lord's work that really counts, then pray for the help. Say something to the Lord like, Lord, I'm going to work on this today, going to do this today. I need your help to make it count. Just talk to him. Pray. Ask him for help. He promises He's a good father. He knows how to give gifts to his children. And Jesus, in Luke's version of this, actually says, how much more will he, that is God the Father, when you human fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, as you're going to work tomorrow morning, ask him, Lord, I need your spirit. Help me. I'm going to work. Make it count. So that's the P, pray. The T, the first T, is trust. So you've, you've admitted your helplessness apart from him. You've prayed and asked for his help. T, trust. Trust a specific promise that he's going to work. And there are all kinds of promises in the Bible. Find your favorites. They're all over. Here's one of my favorites, Isaiah 41.10, that is general enough, it can kind of cover all kinds of circumstances. Where the Lord says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So just take that promise and trust it. And go off. And then the second A 
aptaz, where we're at now, the A, is act. Here, here's the reality. You've got you to gotta get your legs out of bed, and you've got to go to work. <laughs> it's not admit, pray, trust, sit, do nothing, and boom, God just does it all. No, he has ordained us to work. He's ordained to work through his people. So you, you act, you go. Whatever your job is, whatever you're off to that day, you, you just go, you work, you act in faith. And then T at the end of the day, the last one, aptat, you thank him. In the words of the psalm, you rest. So thank you, Lord, for the day. I'm going to bed now. It sounds simple, because, I mean, in one sense it is, but every day doing this, like, it, it, it's a habit. Got to form it. But I think this is, in my mind, very helpful. It makes what feels to me a little bit abstract and unclear, like, well, unless the Lord builds, but, like, he doesn't pick up a hammer and start hitting nails. and t- He's not physically building the house. You're building the house. I'm building the house. So it feels a little like, well, unless he does it, then all my building is in vain. So it feels a little just abstract to me. This helps me put meat to it, practical, everyday. How do I do this? How do I work and live so that it's, my life counts, that's so not in vain? Aptap. I think that's how we can have a God-centered view of reality. So returning to the quote at the beginning from that French philosopher, he asked, who is the personage of history? Well, the Lord is the person of history, not man. More specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ He not only, through his word, teaches us how to live a truly meaningful life and pursue significance, we've kind of been talking about that tonight, he also secured it for us through his death and resurrection. He secured our life of meaning and significance and all of our labor for him. He secured it by his death and resurrection. So I just close with this exhortation from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, it's at the end of his moving discourse on the resurrection and what we do in light of it. Here's what he says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He secured it for you, and he's taught us how to go about putting this into action each day. And so let's pray together and ask for him to help us. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us what meaning, what life, what reality is 
all about and how we can conform our lives to it. Lord, that is conform our lives to you. To so live and work and breathe and pursue all kinds of things in the knowledge that you are the one who ultimately works. So Lord, help us to abide in you. Help us to pray daily. Help us to trust your promises to us that you're working and help us to act. And then help us to, when the day's end comes, thank you and rest. We pray that you would continue to do great and mighty works through us, your people, as you have for so many years down through the centuries. We want our lives to count. So make that happen, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.